What does advocacy in public health look like? How do we campaign for issues, especially issues affecting women in Africa? What are practical steps in approaching advocacy outside the continent? What are some useful tools and platforms? How can we advocate for policy change from anywhere in the world? And how do we galvanize support for these issues? These are some of the questions we hope to get answered on this episode. Hello there, my name is Dr. Essien, and welcome to another episode of Health Talk Africa, a podcast by the African Public Health Network at Johns Hopkins. Our guest speakers on this episode are Judy Kael Irakoze, Chizaba Wonodi, and Chineye Wanaka. And the event was facilitated by Dr. Anu Gupta, also a member of APHN. Enjoy. Welcome everyone. I will go ahead and get started. So this is our advocacy workshop. Um, We are doing this in collaboration with JB Grant and the Anti-Racist Coalition. I'm very glad to have you here. Um, Again, this organization is the African Public Health Network. My name is Ukemet Essien and I am the current president. So, um, and we are also doing this with, uh, in collaboration with Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Alumni Association. Um, They funded a lot of what we're trying to do throughout this conference. Um, The hashtag for this conference is Faces of Africa 2021. And this year's theme is Advancing Women's Equity in Africa. So uh, let's get started. And um, Anu, can I just let me know when the third speaker is here? Because I'm not going to be um, looking at the chat. Thank you. Okay, so Chineye Wanaka. Um, She is a lawyer and social entrepreneur. She is a founder and managing partner of the Firma Advisory, a boutique law firm in Nigeria. Um, She has clients in the Middle East, Europe, and America. She's passionate about energy law, intellectual property, technology law, and policy. She is also the CEO of other subsidiaries such as Firma Foods, and Firma Energy, which is a startup focused on gas and renewable energy and mining. She is the lead for the intellectual property for the National Assembly Business Environment Roundtable, a collaboration between the legislative and executive arm of the government in Nigeria. She is a Harvard-trained policy implementation expert and co-founder of African Policy Conversations Initiative, which is also how we discovered her. Uh, which is a pan-African group of intellectual professionals from various sector um, with the goal of revolutionizing policies that will serve not only Nigerian citizens, but also Africans within the continent and in the diaspora. She is head of fundraising committee for Nigerian Bar Association, uh, Women's Forum, and the co-convener of Lawyers for Creative Initiative. She has convened and hosted and moderated several stakeholder engagements and conferences and webinars, um, government agencies, policy makers, world-renowned experts. She's also the recipient of several awards, including Social Impact Award from the Vice President of Nigeria, Professor Yemi Osibajo, for her efforts in improving access to justice for the less privileged and pro bono legal aid in Nigeria. She has also been recognized as a mentor by the Young Lawyers Association in Abuja. 
So let's go on and introduce Dr. Winodi. Dr. Winodi, welcome. Um, Dr. Winodi is an associate scientist and Nigeria country director for the International Vaccine Access Center, a public health physician with interest in vaccine policies, programs, and systems. She leads a global portfolio of work to improve immunization access coverage and equity within integrated healthcare systems. She has led several implementation science research projects as principal investigator, including a recently concluded Gates-funded project to evaluate the use of SMS messaging to improve immunization uptake in Northern Nigeria. She is a co-investigator on a welcome-funded study on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. She also serves as a director for immunization for the five-year USAID-funded Momentum Country and Global Leadership Project. Dr. Wunodi obtained her medical degree from the University of Benin, Nigeria, and her master's and doctorate in public health from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health as a Gates Scholar. She's a member of the Gavi CSO Constituency Platform Steering Committee and represents the constituency as an observer at the WHO Strategic Advisory Group of Experts for Immunization. Welcome, Dr. Winodi. I will get started by reading their bios. Um, okay. So Judy is a feminist activist, passionate with articulating the experiences of women and overall the youth. She's a community organizer and social entrepreneur with a record of advocating for children, women, and children and women's rights um, and overall human, human rights. She has worked on different issues ranging from youth development, refugee integration, feminist organizing, community mobilizing, lobbying, and advocacy. She is the 2019 European Commission Young Leader on Migration, the G20 Young Global Changer on Gender Equality, a delegate at the International Congress of Youth Voices, a published author, a contributor, writer at the African Feminisms, and has done multiple consultancies as she currently works for multilateral organizations. Judy has worked on different research projects from documenting, organizing case studies, evaluating, monitoring, and giving baseline recommendations, uh, mostly offering disruptive community-led change. She works as a facilitator engaged in the critical analysis and collective organizing um, as part of different movements. She's known for her online presence, which is also how I discovered her, um, educating on issues centering on feminism, African politics, and more. She's a grassroots organizer who believes in community-led movements. Uh, thank you for being here, Judy. And if it's not um, Hi, any... This is um, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. Hi, this is Mason. Um, thank you so much. This is such a wonderful uh, session. I just have a question, how we deal with the violence against women when it comes from the government itself, like when they use it as the women uh, to dehumanize women. Um, I'm from Sudan. We have a lot of conflict going on. I'm, I'm from Darfur actually, where the, they use the raping women as a, as a women against uh, specific 
people, which is my tribe, for example, they use it as something systematic. It's not something like uh, random. It's very, very systematic. And it takes forever, like since 2003, people are suffering, are in, women are in IDP scam, and still now when I'm talking to you now, they are suffering from like trauma and all that. And, and it's going, like still it's going on, like within all this international uh, involvement in, in this issue. And I'm very sure some of you may hear about that, the, the genocide in Darfur and the rape of group of people that they are very selective. So um, sometimes I feel like there's no hope even because this, it takes forever to find it. So if you can just tell me like how we can deal with this, even myself as, as um, I really traumatized of that. I'm not a victim, but I'm really traumatized of that kind of what I faced in my life. And thank you. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm really, really, really sorry. Uh, I don't even know what to tell you. Um, and it really breaks my heart every single time. I, as I said earlier, we work in Nakivari refugee camp, it's in Uganda. And I work with, most of the population we work with are Somalis, are Sudan, Burundian, Congolese, and Kenyan. And when you hear the, the lived realities of all these communities, you, you really wonder, really, really wonder if, if people understand how rape and, and, and violence against women have been weaponized and have been used as a weapon of war. Because when people talk about war and they under, and, and underestimate how it's going to go back in affecting women and girls, we, we are really lying to ourselves. Um, look at what's happening, as she said, what's happening in Sudan right now, uh, what's happening in Tigray right now, and, and how women and girls are being sexually violated on a day broad light and no news covering at all. Uh, uh, and, 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 and then we're gonna get surprised when, when, when a few years from now, we hear all these children born from rape during the war. We're gonna get surprised from all these survivors' stories of how women were sexually, sexually abused during all these political crises. So me, I always, always get angry because, because our governments are really responsible for that. We have to name it. Our government are strategic when they really, really finance and be part of war knowing very well that it's going to harm women and girls first um we work in the democratic republic of the congo in goma with the center for survivors when these women tell you the things that their bodies have went through the things the army have done to these women you won't believe it you sit and ask yourself we really in a world where women are being treated like this on a day life and lives are going on so I don't, I, I don't really know what to tell. It makes me more angry because it also made me realize that I'm helpless. I can't, I, there's nothing I can do, you know, besides tweeting about it, writing about it. I do not have the capability to stop all these wars that are unnecessary. That is the point. All these wars that truly are harming women and girls, that all these wars that shouldn't exist. So I'm really, really sorry for, for what you're going through in Sudan. Um, it's it's sad, man. It's it's really sad. Um, 
it's 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 absolutely absolutely sad i was in nigeria uh, last week and 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 one of my colleagues who work works in in the north was telling me the the experiences of women and girls there i'm just i'm just like are we our government's not not aware that this is not okay like this is not okay that 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 women and girls are existing in these conditions you know uh it's it's really unacceptable and 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 i i, I really want to live in an africa where a government would declare a state of emergency because of this you know what they say we are declaring a state of emergency because our women and girls have suffered enough but here we are women and girls being violated sexually harassed sexually all of these things that are happening to women's bodies, they don't care. It's just, it's just a reality, you understand? And that really angers me and I'm really, really sorry. I really don't know what to even tell you. Uh, I really don't know. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for responding, um, Judy. And, and thank you for that. I think I missed the name of the person that spoke. Um, thank you for Maison. sharing your experience. Sorry? Maison. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your experience. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things, they, they get so um, interesting and informative and you just want to go on and on. Um, but I think everybody's back to this room. So we're, we're going to start closing things out. Um, and again, thank you so much to our speakers. Um, in beginning the closing remarks, I'm going to start with Chinea because we didn't get to hear much from her, um, but she's here now. Um, the, the question would be more along the lines of, in your opinion, what are some practical ways that people outside the continent can partake in advocacy and advocate for issues within the continent? Uh, Chinea, this is for you. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Good evening. I'm so sorry that I joined late. Um, I mixed up the time. I thought it was, <clears throat> I thought it was um, five o'clock my time, Nigerian time. I'm in Lagos, Nigeria at the moment. And um, I, I just listened into the last uh, speaker. And um, I, I just want to start by saying a bit about myself. I don't know if we've had the chance to do that. So I'm a lawyer and um, I'm the managing partner of the firm advisory and with the firm advisory a couple of years ago we launched an access to justice initiative um, where we um, support uh, victims of domestic violence um, we do a lot of advocacy in schools and in communities especially in areas that are um, under represented and areas that are um, you have a lot of indigent members of society so we've been doing this access to justice uh, initiative for about four years now. And we also represent uh, uh, people who are in prison. So some people are, you know, wrongfully accused of offenses that they didn't commit and they end up being locked up. And sometimes they can't even afford, um, um, they can't afford legal representation. So they end up being in prison for a long time. So that's, you know, part of the, the, the reason why we decided to set up this access to justice initiative, because as lawyers, uh, we believe that we can do more than just uh, complain or sit on the sidelines. Sorry, I'm moving. So my network might go in and out. But um, so really quickly, um, everybody on the continent and even in diaspora needs to put all hands on deck 
you know, be it uh, practitioners in the health sector or in the legal sector, there's something that we all can do. Uh, so for instance, I, instead of complaining about the justice system, was able to use the platform of being a lawyer and having a law firm to get myself and other lawyers that I work with to offer pro bono legal services, you know. And so even people who are in the diaspora, for instance, some of you are, a lot of you are in the medical profession, you know, uh, sometimes people come on trips, missions to Africa, and they support because a lot of women and children need mental health. Um, and so there are also rights act, and then there's the violent act. And a lot of times when you go to a lot of communities, they don't even know that these laws exist. So the first step is education and sensitization. That's the first step. You know, people need to know that these laws exist for them to even be able to enforce it. And then after sensitization and, 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 and advocacy, the next step is helping them with the process of going to court, you know, identifying who the offenders are, you know, going to the police stations to report these cases. And we have a very um, notorious, um, sorry to say, police, the system in Nigeria, you know, because you have a lot of corruption in the police stations. You have people who are, you know, looking for bribes before they even open up a case. And, you know, with um, offenses like rape, you know, if you don't gather evidence immediately, um, then there's, there's a problem because uh, after some, some days, you can't get the samples from the, from the, from the victims. So um, it's a very uh, delicate issue. So even the police people also need sensitization as well. And not thinking that everybody who is coming, any woman who is, is raped is, um, for instance, making it up because of what she wore, you know, things like that, or thinking that if people are friends, they cannot be victims of, of, of rape and so on and so forth. So the advocacy and the sensitization has to happen on all levels. And that's why we start in schools. We start, um, you know, talking to uh, young children from primary school, secondary school, and then also communities, especially where the education, um, the literacy rate is low. You, know, you have to explain to them, interpret these laws for them in a language that they understand. Sometimes it might be in Hausa, sometimes it might be in Pidgin. Pigeon, which is like, um, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys know what Pigeon is because they're Nigerians on this call as well, but um, broken English, basically. So, um, yeah, so that's that's just the, the whole thing. Everybody has a role to play, especially us as young people with social media, raising awareness about some of these um, about some of these issues. I think I'm going to stop here <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, open to comments and questions. Many Thank you. Question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so because we are we are kind of running out of time, um, I want to remind everyone that we have um, a Discord um, and that we can also continue conversations there because just because we have another event. Um, and in closing, I would like to um, just ask, I know Dr. Wunudi mentioned she had to quickly step away, um, but if you guys have like 30 seconds in closing, just so that we end on time for the next um, next event, just like any kind of last comments, Judy, Chinea, any last comments, um, just really, really quickly um, before we end. Um, I guess my last comments were just, you know, first and foremost, really sorry that I joined late. And um, if there are people out there who are interested in collaborating on, you know, advocacy around gender-based violence um, or supporting in any way, um, you can reach out to me. My, my, I'll, I'll put my email address and my 
um, contact details in the chat box, but I'm very okay. open to collaborating. Apart from within Nigeria, all other parts of Africa as well, we've been doing a lot of advocacy work across the continent. So I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you so much for the, for the invitation. Okay, thank you. Yes, yes. Um, and I don't know if you do a lot of social media. If you do, you can also put your handle so that we can also all connect with you. Um, even just APHN connection with you. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I think that's it. Um, I want to thank you all. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Dr. Winodi. Thank you, Chinea, for, for coming to this event. Um, Thank you all for also stopping by. I hope you guys learned a lot from the different rooms you were in um, and the conversations we've had so far. Um, and just a reminder for anyone that missed any part of it, it will be recorded or it's being recorded. And we hope to put all the recorded um, events as part of our podcast. So you can always be able to um, visit it and listen to it on your own time. Um, and just a quick heads up, we will be starting the next event, which I'm very excited for. I, I, I won't say much about it, but it's it involves food and cooking. Um, so I'm super, super excited uh, to see what, the, what that's gonna, going to look like. Um, Yes. So thank you all for stopping by and uh, please stay on because the next event, if you're interested, starts in about uh, seven minutes. Okay. So I hope I am not, first of all, I hope I, I didn't just mispronounce your last name, but uh, what I'm going to do right now is allow for you to both tell us more about yourselves. I know I've just read a very long uh, overall bio, but maybe tell us more about your current work. Um, especially as it pertains to um, how you're doing work in advocacy. Um, and then we can we can go from there. So Judy, uh, Dr. Minodi, uh, you can, whomever, can, can get us started. Okay, I'm happy to start. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you very much to the organizers for the opportunity to share here with, with you all. Um, when I saw the invitation to, to come speak at Faces of Africa, I was very excited because um, as you heard from my short bio, I actually did my MPH and DRPH here at Hopkins. And I remember the year I was doing my master's, we, we helped to organize the second Faces of Africa um, ever. So um, that's a long, long time ago. And wow. uh, yes, <laughs> so the first one was organized by the, uh, the set before us, I think Michael Nottage and, and, and his team, uh, they were the ones that organized it. And then we, we took on the, the tradition um, thereafter. Um, and and it, was, it was really exciting to do it in person. Um, the food, the, there was a fashion show, my children uh, participated in the fashion show because you know, I'm an older student. And so when I was in school, uh, my kids were, you know, young and all. So that's, that's really nostalgic to think about all that. But um, here we are today. Um, this is a, you know, this is a different world. Um, uh, this is a world that has um, been foisted on us by an, an epidemic disease. And, um, and how we get back from the um, current 
um, disruptions of our lives and our livelihoods um, really depends a lot on vaccines. So I've spent the last um, 10 years or so, or even more than that, working on vaccines and immunization. And a lot of the advocacy work that, um, that I've done has centered on ensuring that um, vaccine programs are funded and that requires a lot of advocacy uh, to ensure that the government's um, responsible will um, allocate money in the budget for the programs to be funded, as well as um, um, doing work around um, social mobilization and getting the people who these vaccines are meant for to uptake the vaccine. So um, my discussion today is gonna center around um, how we do advocacy and um, what, uh, what are the critical steps that we need to take uh, to prepare to do effective advocacy. And um, I'm gonna share an A-frame that I really like to use. There are multiple frames that people can use, um, but, but that's what I'm going to share. And I would like us to actually um, dig in and, and then work on a real life advocacy uh, question that we, that's facing us in the next two months. Um, so in May this, this year, the next um, immunization, global immunization um, plan is going to be launched in at the World Health Assembly. And there is an advocacy effort around that. So it'll be interesting to, to hear from the participants what their ideas would be for how we can take this technical dry document, but very important document, strategic document, take it from the, um, from the realm of the scientists and the vaccine experts to the realm of the, the public, the youth, to make it a social movement. So um, we're hopefully we should have time to talk about that. And I think that's the best way really to, um, to have this workshop because it was told to me that this is gonna be a workshop. So the best way to do a workshop is actually to get your hands dirty and, and, and work on a particular um, um, project. So thank you so much. That's, that would be my introduct introductory remarks. Thank you, yes, uh, this is a workshop. So after we've done the initial um, introduction here, we will have breakout rooms so that you can, you know, really get people to get their hands dirty. Um, but yes, thank you. Um, Judy, would you like to go ahead and Yes. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's such a joy to be joining this conversation. Um, well, um, I'm, a, I'm a community organizer. And for me, advocacy has been an act of caring for the community, but also a collective art of community trying to survive uh, for themselves first. Uh, so that's why whenever I'm asked to define what advocacy means to me, I have to make it personal because I'm also part of different communities. And most of the work that I have done have also been related to personal stories, but also my personal identities that affect the work that I do. Um, 
so yes, I'm open to share during this conversation, the particular work that I have done at the intersections of race, gender, and class, and how it affects the everyday work that we do to build equity, even in public health, and how um, all of these factors and how institutions navigate the realities that community faces when it comes to race, when it comes to gender, when it comes to the social classes that are affecting our everyday life, and how it shows um, and, and how the world is stagnant behind to achieve the equity that I won't achieve. And now the pandemic happened and the pandemic really took us way behind from where we were in building an equitable world for everybody. So there's so much work now that has to be done in terms of redefining what advocacy means. How do we, even in terms of advocating, how do we hold accountable to people who are claiming to advocate for us or people who are in the forefront of demanding that communities get to be taken care of, communities get to be be part of decision making but at the end of the day what what should be the best way to advocate for equity when it comes to women uh, and then when it comes to African women so yeah thank you for having me great thank you um, as you will all notice we've tried to balance things out in terms of like um, having someone with a, a deep background in public health and research and having a community activist with us um, because Sometimes we, especially as people that are more um, embedded in academics and in the academic world, uh, we only hear from people um, from that background. So I just thought it would be great for us to also hear from um, community activists and, and what they do. And um, okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, okay. So before we head out to our breakout rooms, just still a very broad question, um, because we're talking about equity. Um, people have asked me equity versus equality. Um, and, and the reason, I'm, as I mentioned, the reason I focus more on equity and um, not equality, because I, I feel like almost in this situation, when it comes to the plight of women in Africa, and I'm speaking very broadly, um, there, we've had so much exclusion that we have to first create the tools um, that will be right to bring us into the main frame of the conversation um, before we start talking about equity. Because you can't jump, um, for people that have been left out, you can't jump and start treating everybody the same, which is more about equality. So equity is just, for me, it's more about bringing tools together. So just putting that as a background as, and as a framework. Um, how would you say that you reach out, how do you involve women currently um, in your advocacy efforts? So uh, Dr. Winodi, through your research work, Judy, through your community work, um, I would like us to cover that and then we can go on to our breakout rooms. Sorry, what's the question again? Um, how, do you, how do you currently involve women in your advocacy work? Okay, thank you for that question. Yeah. Um, I don't think it, I added it in my brief bio, but one of the hats I wear is the founder and convener of, um, of a coalition of women's group called Women Advocates for Vaccine Access. So this is a, this is a group that um, I, I put together in 2016 when um, we were starting out um, advocacy work for vaccine fund financing. And, and I realized that women actually um, have a lot of platforms that they 
you know, that they converge in, that they work, and that when women have, you know, when women take up a course, that they can really deliver on that course. So there were wives of governors who have this amazing platform that they could use to do uh, maternal and child health advocacy. And um, so with, with that effort, I, you know, I, I made them champions. So had a few uh, champions, um, vaccine champions under the WAVA platforms. And then there are other women's um, organizations, um, grassroots organizations who have a, you know, real life relationship with the communities and with the children that we want these vaccines to be provided to, but who needed uh, more information around the role that they could play within the remit of the work that they did. So we brought together this uh, coalition of women's group called Women Advocates for Vaccine um, Access. So we have um, about 50 members in the coalition is based in Nigeria. Um, and there are a variety of, you know, they focus on a variety of things. And um, some of the things we've done to empower uh, these women's groups um, as capacity building, um, we, you know, we've run workshops to really tell them about what vaccines are and how they can uh, mainstream vaccine work into their, uh, into their work. We've also um, provided small grants um, to some of the organizations to take to take their own idea and bring it to life. Um, I remember one of our very active um, members, uh, Vaccine Network for Disease Control. There's a very interesting project she did. One, she, she, she called them, um, she called them vaccine, um, it's, it's sort of like community advocates for, for vaccination. So she, she took women in the communities and, and trained them about um, vaccination and encouraging um, mothers and fathers to seek uh, primary health care. And then these women will go house to house because they live in those communities and then educate their peers around the importance of care seeking and, and vaccine. And that was very successful. After that project, the wife of the governor in the state where she did that project actually took up that, um, took up that project and uh, took it as one of the things that um, she, she was doing. So um, our work really is to catalyze, um, catalyze effort, catalyze activity, working with women, because we, we are not there in the grassroots, but our members are there in the grassroots. So we give them the tools in terms of information, in terms of financing when we have the funds, in terms of materials, in terms of networking, because there's a lot that they can learn from each other. So we give them the tools and then they now use their, their platforms to execute in the execute the advocacy and community mobilization in the, in the way that fits the context that they work in. Thank you. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, and Judy, would you like to tell us more about how you currently um, work with women in the continent? Um, yeah, yeah, um, I'm actually very privileged to be leading one of the best organizations that I'm proud to be part of. Uh, some of you may have come across it, it's called Choose Yourself. We operate in 12 African countries now. Um, and our organization is women, um, is, is by young women, for young women. Our staff are women. Um, the leadership is young women and we do work with women. 
Um, so I'm, I've been very privileged to be on that journey for the past three years. So we work on three main uh, goals. One, we do movement building, which means we, 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 we study and work with communities, young women in different communities to create movements, to participate in the change that they wanna see in their community. But that participation in the change that they wanna see community happens in three ways. Once they have to document on what's happening in their community and that documentation have to happen in what we call a sisterhood resistance. So it doesn't have to be personal experience, it has to be a collective awareness of what's happening that is affecting all of them and that they have to center the marginalized, which means poor women, trans and queer women, sex workers, all those are groups of women that are left when we talk about women as this one big group of, of category. Then we do work with refugees and our, our, our intentional when it comes to refugees is also rooted in, 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 in personal stories of the members of the organization, but also realizing that the African continent has a big issue that was left behind for a long time. Because when people talk about gender equality, when people talk about building an Africa safe for women, they forget that our continent is rooted in a crazy political crisis that affects women and girls first. So every year, there's a number of refugees that are created, either political refugees or economic refugees. And those refugees and or those um, IDPs or those uh, mig migration that happened on, on the continent. I'm talking about African migrations. I'm not talking about Africans leaving to go to the West. I'm talking about African living from one country to another. That affects women. So there has been a lot of sex trafficking. There have been a lot of human trafficking. There's been a lot of forced prostitution that is affecting women and girls. And most of them ending up in refugee camp all over the continent. So we do work that centers on how to make sure that women are not kept in refugee camp. Because the recent statistic by you and Asher proved that 80% of the population of the camps are young women between the age of 16 to 45. So which means 80% is a lot if we have to truly make sure that we achieve equity. And then to keep 80% of the population that is young women in conditions of living of token food 10 to 20 years, it's a lot. So yeah, so we do work that centers on how do we make them go back to into the host communities and be part of the community building. So we, 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 we work with different local partners in training them, sending them to school, and, and then also we work with the host government into facilitating all that transition from refugee camp to local communities. How do you, how do they get residency, all those kind of things. Another program that we have that I'm very proud of is, is, is a program that centers on economic justice. It's also rooted that if women do not have economic liberation, we cannot truly advance equity because at the end of the day, the, 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 the economy of the African continent still is in the hands of men. So few women actually have the economic power to, to do most of the work that they wanna do. And, and, and then when you study um, entrepreneurship on the continent or, or, or women who are in position of power, the more you climb into this position of power, the lower the number of women you find. And, and, and then we did a study that made us found that every single year, 10, um, 10 businesses that women start, nine of them, they stop. Either because of lack of money, two, lack of family support, three, lack of community support. So we created a program that tried to offer them all of that, Try to one, build that confidence in them that they truly can go after economic justice, two, 
build a community support rooted in a program where not only they are part of a fellowship, but it's going to be a continuous family that's going to check up on the investment they are doing when they are venture on their project. Three, we try to then guide them into having a communal support that is really going to follow up in making sure that they go after what they are having, they're trying to do. Um, so that's what we've been trying to do for the past three to four years. It's not a lot because the, the, the task on our hands when it comes to the African continent and achieving equity is so much more than what we are doing. Because at the end of the day, uh, when we talk about the African continent, talk about political crisis and talk about poverty, those are the two main things that are stopping us from achieving equity. And those two things affect women and girls much more and let alone women in rural areas and let alone women in countries where they do not have accessibility to, to public health or accessibility to to, to advocacy or accessibility to actually institutions or, or, or public institutions that really care for them. So that is the work we have been trying to do. And unfortunately, we are only working in 12 countries now and the continent has about 54 countries. So we hope to make it to the entire continent, maybe sometimes. Wow, that's, that's really impressive. Thank you. Um, and I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. Financial inclusion is, is such a rudimentary part of what is needed to even begin the conversation about equality and equity. Um, so much so that we're also having a session on financial inclusion of African women tomorrow at 11.30 a.m. EST. Um, for anyone interested, tomorrow we're having that with um, two female African founders. Um, hopefully they can walk us through the journey and, and difficulties they had. Um, as we head into the uh, breakout rooms, uh, some of the, the key things we're trying to get by doing this more as a workshop than just another panel um, was to be able to hopefully equip um, you, the audience, with a lot of um, knowledge about platforms and tools and just what practical steps you can use in approaching advocacy, especially as people outside the continent. So hopefully we can hear some tips on things like that also. Um, how can we advocate for policy change from anywhere in the world? Um, because I hear that over and over. Okay, I'm all the way out here. And because, you know, I, I have bills, I, I mean, this is where I am right now, but how can I partake in that advocacy work? So hopefully when we are done with, with these sessions, um, uh, you guys all have at least some tools uh, and more knowledge and than you had before we started the um, event. Um, so, and I will start by also doing a quick introduction. We have, as I mentioned, two student groups here working with us. Uh, for JB Grant, we have Jeffrey Ed Edwards. He will be working with uh, Judy in her room. And in the other room, we have Maddie from the Anti-Racist Coalition. She'll be working with Dr. Winodi and we'll have Anu also in the room. Uh, Anu is from um, African Public Health Network. So uh, super excited. Um, can you set up uh, the break, breakout room now? So the breakout room will be for Dr. Winodi. And then anyone that wants to stay on here will be um, listening to Judy and Jeffrey. Um, Jeffrey will be facilitating that um, and Judy will be the, the main speaker here. Um, and then the breakout room will be for Dr. Winodi and Maddie and Anu would be facilitating and moderating that room. Sorry, Jeffrey, what were you saying? Oh, no problem. No, I was just gonna thank you again for, for setting this up and thank Judy for spending the time to come. So is, 
if is there anything Judy that you wanted to cover initially um anything key things lessons that you wanted us to go over and if not um, I have a few questions that can help spark discussion yeah I think I'll go with your questions okay great and um for anyone who has questions too from the um who's participating we'd love to have your input as well so um the first question um kind of builds on what we had talked about a little bit um initially uh which is what uh what does advocacy look like um when you're working like in the field when you're doing activism work um, do you mind giving us a few concrete examples? You had mentioned how it's very dependent on the context, and so it'd be great to have some examples of what that's looked like for you. Mm, that's Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so I think one thing I've learned, um, and I think I've learned that over the core of my, my community organizing, so I've organized um, in 27 African countries so far, and by organizing means did project with the communities, um organize with them on the issues that are affecting them and i can assure you every single community has a way of dealing with their own issues um so i i, I used to stay a lot about center community until i get to a place where i really do need to center community uh, so the recent example that i will give for example is we 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 we, we two years ago that was 2019 um we started, I started organizing in Congo. I'm in Kinshasa right now. Um, so we started organizing in Kinshasa. Um, in case you don't know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is one of the country code and code that Wikipedia call the, 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 the capital of rape. Um, but they have a lot of rape cases. It's unbelievable. Um, so when I came into this community and met local activists and tried to be in solidarity with them and figure out how we can cooperate and organize around the issues that were affecting with their communities, I had to learn much more than what I taught. Because when I came on here, I had all my experiences of organizing in different other countries that I thought I could apply it here until I realized that the context of the Congo is totally different from the context of other African countries. So I got to realize once it is a community where child marriage is a reality. So they don't see child marriage as something that is bad. Uh, so I remember my first day when I when when I was when I was passing through the town, I saw a girl. She was like 12 years old, very pregnant. She was like really really during her 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 midterm of her pregnancy. I remember stopping the car because it was so worrying to me. She looked so young, 12, 13. I told the driver to stop. I got out and I asked her. Uh, do you need the ride? Are you okay? She was trying, she said, no, I'm selling something. I was like, how old are you? Are you pregnant or are you sick? Me, I was like, maybe she has a belly problem. She can't be pregnant. She's 12. She's like, no, I'm pregnant. And this is my two year old girl. Just like, wait a minute. This is in the middle of the town. So people are passing by. This isn't normal. So me as a stranger, I couldn't, I, I was just, I was just terrified, shocked. So so now coming from different African countries where I didn't experience that reality, now I had to consider that, you know, my organizing had to come from a reality that there's a cultural reality that doesn't see child marriage as a problem. And that is going to affect the organizing that we are trying to do. 
So that requires that now I sit and listen to, to local activists who have been organizing against child marriages, the, the obstacles, the difficulties they have been dealing with. Um, so that that is one 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 of the example. You cannot you cannot organize with a community unless you are really on the ground with them. This is why sometimes when we try to tell people in the diaspora that to truly, truly emphasize and to truly, truly support the work on the ground, you really need to move out of the spotlight. You really need to move out of the spotlight because you do not understand what it means to be on the ground and advocate on certain issues. And this is this is me who 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 spent most of her time in the diaspora and now is working on the continent. I get to realize most of the time where I was in the spotlight and I shouldn't have been because I wasn't on the ground. And there are so many discussion conversations I couldn't get because I wasn't on the ground to truly understand what it means to organize from that. So when you do advocacy work you understand and when you do advocacy, advocacy work from a community perspective you understand that you have to always listen to the community because at the end of the day the communities are the ones trying to survive the issues that they are dealing with and then another thing when you do advocacy work within communities you really have to be able to never give up i think that is something i i was not ready for uh, because I, I, I think my first advocacy work was doing petitions that were successful until I get to be part of communities where you will really rally your efforts and try to lobby around an issue and then the law doesn't pass or it doesn't even reach the, the, the mayor or, or community leaders refuse to accept that law. So now you have to go back to point zero and try to figure out another way to do it. So all of that made me realize the everyday survival that people who do community work have to deal with in terms of how do we how do we challenge something that is mainly rooted that is mainly rooted in culture, mainly rooted in how society is is based. Um, another thing that I that I had to learn with my advocacy work was the 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 different context when it comes to the African continent. You know, we talk about Africa as this big one family, but Africa is totally different. And is, is and is and is, the institutions are also different um, based on who on, on who colonized them. And I'm gonna be specific on this because when you organize in countries that were colonized by the British, it's totally different when you organize by the countries that were colonized by the French. This is because the British colonized through indirect rule. Now you have the French that colonized through direct rule. So the impact of a colonialism are going to truly show up on who stand and block your organizing and also the mentality that the people have. So this is me, the first time I started organizing Francophone countries. It's the shock. I said, wait, wait a minute. Why is it so hard more than the, 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 the country, the, the English country like how is it hard that those the the african countries that were colonized by british are so easy to navigate but you come to these francophone countries it's so hard colonialism is you can smell it it is so hard to even engage in simple conversations around community survival where the, a white person isn't trying to mingle into it um so yeah so so there's all of that so so I think one of the last thing I think I will, I will emphasize is 
is is is is that centering communities also goes back to always listening to the communities either you are part of either you are not part of those communities um because the the, the truth of the matter is when you are a community organized or a community activist with a platform uh, like i am uh, sometimes you are invited to speak on matters that you may not even be familiar with so it demands that you go back to the communities who are familiar with those matters and truly ask them how you better center their needs and their experiences and their voices because at the end of the day advocacy work that doesn't always center community is wrong because who are you advocating for at the end of the day because advocacy work cannot be individual you're not promoting yourself you are not rallying for yourself you are literally literally voicing your concerned for a community so you have to belong to a community as someone who does advocacy work i don't really trust people who do advocacy work and are not part of any community i don't trust them because at the end of the day what are you advocating what are the base i mean beside your personal lived experiences who else are you advocating for so it has to truly be based on a community so yeah so and, and 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 that's the danger of capitalism capitalism has made even advocacy work so individual people will base their advocacy work based on their identity i'm a woman i'm queer i'm trans but without being in a community with other fellow people who they share identity so you find people who are speaking about certain issues based on their only bubble lived experiences and sometimes full of blind spot because every single one of us with our level of survival we have privileges that make our life better and at the end of the day those privileges are uh, stop us from seeing the reality of other people underprivileged than us so it's being in a community where you get to see the reality of others and when you are not in a community with people then you end up being someone who always speak from their own their own lived experience it's not bad but it's not enough it's never enough i'm sorry i spoke for so long don't apologize that was very powerful and super helpful thank you for your insight and just going into details with such personal stories. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to follow up with what you just said, especially the last part. Um, I, I think it's so true about people using their own experiences as what the experiences of everybody in that group should, you know, should look like. And they they project that. Um, we, we're in a very virtual, we're in a time of where everything is virtual. Um, so as I said, as people sort of outside the continent, um, how, how can we join these communities? Like if we say we're doing work for X, Y, Z, how can we, without being there physically, how can we, oh, what are some ways to join community? Do we join specific organizations? Um, you know, what does that look like in our COVID world right now, um, in your opinion? Um, that is a very, a very good question, by the way. Um, I think one of the things that we should be grateful for is the internet board that we have right now. I mean, um, right now I'm part of your community. You guys have something that you're doing and it's a community. So we have to go back to what is a community. You know, uh, a community is, this is, this is a community. Your, your, the conversations, the, the work that you're trying to do is building a community and you have a mechanism of holding each other accountable, holding each other with care and also a vision of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, so I think one of the ways to build communities 
is to be intentional when you're trying to build community, when you're trying to find a community of people who are at the forefront. Uh, and when, when I say be intentional means you really go all the way. Uh, so you have to use the internet. Now we have internet and we have Twitter. Twitter will connect you to anybody that you want. Most of these uh, activists at the forefront are on Twitter. Most of these activists at the forefront are on, are on Instagram or a simple research on local organizations, local movements, local networks that are doing the work that you are interested on, that you relate to exist. And then go all the way, trying to learn from them, build community with them. I'm gonna emphasize on building community. So building community has to be both ways. You go all the way to them and you expect that they also open their doors for you. When they don't open their doors for you, you go someone else, somewhere else where they open their doors for you. But it has to really be intentional, you understand? And I really want to emphasize in being intentional because capitalism has taken away from us the meaning of community we really get okay with being in a bubble where we are in our bubble we're not talking to anybody maybe liking each other's picture not a hello hi just that you know moving on and and we get disconnected so now we are in our own bubble where our own understanding of issues that affect our life comes from ourselves on and that's it and, and and we go we go on on that life on that life on that life until until we get to a point where we realize oh my god i don't have any other reference beside what i'm going through because capitalism took away your ability to listen your ability to really learn about what's happening uh, about some somebody else i always tell people who call themselves pan-african i always ask them beside your country which other countries issue do you know so how are you a pan-african if all you all you know is your country if you are nigerian how are you pan-african if you don't know about anything happening in botswana i mean it's just one google way to google on botswana news and go on the newspaper and learn about what's happening it's what i mean it's one google away to put what is happening in rwanda what is happening in uganda what is happening in kenya just one tweet away to really google about what's happening so for me it's always the intentions of saying, I really wanna find my community. And that comes from also my personal experience. I have built a lot of communities because I made it intentional to go the way to them. From online and ended up in real life, there's so many people that I'm in community with that started online by being community with each other online, then eventually being in physical space together, then being in physical struggle together and deciding to be in each other's community and doing work together or relating on certain issues. So it has to be intentional and really, really making sure that you are intentionally trying to be in a community with with people who you share issues or struggles or care for and 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 but but you really had to find things that matters to you before you be in community with people you now want to end up in community with white supremacists when you are fighting against racism so you're not just going to jump on 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 any community group you see you first find out what really matters to you then you act according i don't know if i yes that was amazing um thank you Thank you, uh, Jeffrey. Yes, thank you. I saw earlier that Mervyn had raised their hand. Um, did you still have a question, Mervyn, or a comment? Yes, um, thank you. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And Julie, it's, it's very nice to um, hear, hear from you because, uh, you know, communities play an important role in, uh, in almost every aspect of life everywhere, uh, you know, so. And I wanted to kind of preface this that I'm an, uh, you know, uh, an ex, I'm an alumni of the school. Um, I've done my MPH uh, almost 11 years back. 
So, and you know, it's nice to see Faces of Africa continue all the way uh, for the past decade and more. So uh, I work at the School of Public Health um, and um, focused on um, an advocacy initiative called Advanced Family Planning. And Julie, what you, what you just mentioned, um, everything resonated so well because you know, without community voices, uh, if, we, if you're advocating for something without involving community voices, uh, we, we wouldn't be advocating for anything. Their voices matter and uh, um, they are uh, the purpose of our uh, you know, objective. Um, or uh, the you know mission or vision uh, matters most, uh, and their voice matters most. So we uh, this is more of a you know um, a comment because you know we work in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo uh, with uh, a local partner, which I mean you know they're locally based, but they're at a university called Tulane, and Tulane has an office in Kinshasa called Tulane uh, International. Um, so you partner with them and we uh, use a tool called the AFP Smart Advocacy Approach, which uh, I believe uh, you know, is, uh, is in the, for the last seven years that I'm associated with this uh, particular initiative has uh, helped um, so many policy uh, changes come into light, has uh, advocated for funding and achieved uh, increased funding for so many different issues. And so this is uh, a, a moment where I'd like to kind of, you know, also share uh, for with other students to kind of, you know, uh, look us up and also kind of, you know, if you're interested in more in advocacy um, related work and uh, in advocacy, we'd be happy to share our experiences and uh, also the tool, the tool is available uh, freely on the website co called advancedfamilyplanning.org. And one of my questions, Julie, to you um, is that, you know, when you're working with the communities um, and, you know, how do you kind of, you know, take those issues um, and make it, make those issues decision maker centric? Like, why would anybody, why would a decision maker, uh, you know, act on your issues and what would be your ask? Because I understand that building communities and working with them is critically important, but how do you take that to a decision maker and say, this is what we need. This is the law we need. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, because, you know, we, we worked on a, uh, on a reproductive health law in, um, in DRC and it was very challenging, of course, uh, even when the whole community was uh, involved and, you know, community-based organizations were involved. So I want to kind of, you know, get some of your experience, you know, you mentioned about uh, changing laws and policies, like, you know, how do you make that uh, kind of a reality from your experience? Any examples? Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, wow. Um, I'm not gonna lie. Um, it's been very hard and very challenging to, to, to make, to push um, decision makers on the African continent to to truly act on laws or policies that we propose them um 
it, it is very hard. And I remember not even so long ago, I was talking to a, a, a colleague and a friend of mine who is in policy making. I was telling her, like, we really need people like you as soon as possible in these spaces. Because the moment we organize, we we we, we campaign, we really rally the, the 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 community to understand why this law should be changed. Now we ended up on a decision maker person who is one asking us for money to pass that law or putting our demand on some corner until like two years or three years. You keep going to, to ask like, have they reviewed the document? Have they agreed or is the parliament going to pass that law? When is it gonna happen? So it's really, really hard because even when you try to lobby, it's more about the money you, you're asking you to give, less about what's in that document. I'm not saying that it's most of African countries, but it's not saying that it's all, but most of them. So it's been really, 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 really hard. Um, I have countless failures uh, of many, many, many good policies that we have drafted and, and submitted. Unfortunately, they didn't pass. Um, and, and, and then also there is that culture and religious and also the undermining of, of women's issues at some, um, how can I say, at some matters that are not important, which is really, really very ridiculous uh, that, that, that we will have to deal with an, an, an official who will tell us, oh, uh, you, want, you want women and girls to have uh, 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 access to free, free sanitary pads? That's not important. Who says with all the issues in this country, sanitary pads, something important. Then that, we will tell that same person that we have young girls as young as 14 being forced into prostitution because they cannot afford to buy a sanitary pad. So that's an emergency because once we have, we, we, we would tell them to be like, we had documented many young girls who were sexually abused by guards at this, at this refugee camp because they wanted to have access to sanitary pads, then ended up getting pregnant, then died through unsafe abortions. Like it's an emergency, you, you don't get it? Then they'll be like, no, sanitary so you, you, you have to recycle all of those. Um, so I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna lie. Um, organizing with community gets hard. Then the most hardest thing has been institutions, really, really trying to show up for communities. Um, as I said, the, the, this last example of, of, of asking um, one of the African countries that I'm not gonna go into mention, that has a lot of refugees all the African countries, asking them to try to make sanitary pads free, especially for rural women and poor women. We were like, okay, since you do not want to make them tax-free, can at least make them free for rural and poor women? Because we documented a lot of young girls who were missing school during the period's time. A lot of young girls in this refugee camp who were being sexually abused, forced into prostitution just to be able to have small money to buy sanitary pads and be able to go to school. They documented a lot of teen pregnancies related to that, a lot of unsafe abortion. So we had all these data really documented documented the world recorded that was submitted to them, but yet not enough for them to really realize the sanitary part. It's, it's, it's something that should, med should be really considered as something 
as an issue being resolved to really cancel all these other effects that comes with it. So I'm not gonna lie, it's really, really hard. But as a community activist, I really have to be so hopeful every single day. You try, you fail, you try again, because at the end of the day, you're not gonna give up on community just because it stopped. You just pray that maybe one day you bump up onto someone who has sense, and then it will work out. Or maybe you're gonna push, push as hard as possible. But 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 in a country like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I have so many colleagues who try to push as hard as possible and that ended, ended up in exile because now it looks like you are trying to defy a government, you're trying to defy an institution. So it's really, really, really hard. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, but again, we just hope for the best, I guess. Thanks. Thanks, Julie. Can I can I take a minute? Um, Jeffrey. Okay, thank you, Judy. Uh, and and another side. Thank thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I know that you know it, it's extremely hard. Um, I as a as a plug, uh, I I I feel that you know uh, the smart advocacy approach. Um, it is a decision maker centric approach, um, and uh, it is a way uh, or a or a or a means on how do we take community issues and make it decision maker centric. How do we make it relevant for the decision maker? And I would urge you um, to uh, to uh, come look us up, uh, uh, see the smart approach. Uh, happy to kind of you know connect you with our partners in Kinshasa, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure that you know uh, you'll find a great connect. Uh, there's so much passion here, and uh, there's so much more, so much more we need to do all together um, as you know champions and um, advocates. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for the time, Jeffrey. Yes, and thank you for your excellent question, um, as well as yeah, being able to share about your organization as well. Um, Judy, again, just so thankful for your insight and wisdom um, and experience in this process. And I'm wondering uh, something for a lot of us who are predominantly based in the US or other parts of the world, what are ways do you think that we can um, actively engage in advocacy efforts or support people who are doing advocacy efforts more locally throughout the continent. Um, and I guess for, for me as someone who has done work, I've done work in Western Kenya, um, Sudan, um, Malawi, um, but I, all of my context is issued in like is restricted to those specific areas, but how can I better, um, I don't plan on doing advocacy work unless I have a knowledge of the, the context, but how can I otherwise support people who are doing great work like yourself and others who are doing that work on the ground and inform myself of these issues, um, even if I'm not there physically. Um, so I think one of, one of the main issues that I have documented is the lack of documentation of, of, of what's really, really going on the continent. And I'm talking about lack of documentation in terms of proper research work, in terms of data that are accurate. Um, so I think I will urge uh, uh, everyone interested in truly supporting community organizing to reach out to organization and offer them uh, to do research work for them in terms of, oh, you're doing work on teen pregnancies. How about we do a study to figure out uh, how many new cases have, we have gotten this year and also document who are the people not being able to report. Many of local organizations, because of how small they are, they do not have the resources to really have specific data. So they move around with people. I know it's like, oh, 
the two girls I know in my neighborhood have gotten pregnant. So that's the references they will give, not like accurate data documentation. Also because most of these uh, public institutions will also invest in that. So that is one of the things. Uh, this is why I think I think community and academia really have to really go in hand in hand because they need each other. They need each other when it comes to also submitting all these reports to, to, to decision makers. There have to be facts, you understand? There have to be facts. And, and even though those facts are based on really lived experiences, they really have to be data documented well, well detailed that really pushes decision makers to see this as something that as urgent as possible. I think that's one of the way. Um, I think another another way will be to to try to maybe amplify on what's happening on the ground, uh, regarding of which level of expertise you have or which level you are working on, to try to amplify, amplify or maybe what, what, what if, if you're from Malawi and you are interested in working with the local organization in Malawi, amplify it, amplify it to your network, amplify it to people who are part of who are part of your everyday everyday work outside of the continent really amplify it uh, you never know the impact that can have for small local organization because i remember in uganda i i, I worked with a young a, a woman she's not young she's quite old now um she has worked on 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 rescuing women who have fistula uh, in a small town uh for like 17 years now that woman has done this work for, for 17 years with her own money. Literally money she gets from her small businesses that she does, she rescues women in her neighborhood. So, so, so because of this condition that is, is in her community and many women don't have money to get treated, uh, women who have fistula are usually kicked out of their homes by their husband or isolated from community. So in her home, she started like another two or three rooms where she would rescue them, take care of them, uh, make, make sure they go through the treatment they need to get healed. This woman have done this for 17 years. And I, when I was at her place, I kept thinking of how much she could have done if she had the resources to do more if she had the resources to document on fistula and how it's it's a public health issue and how it's affecting her neighborhood, how she could have done more if she had the resources to really have like a no case center. All of that making me realize that this disconnect between all these local community organization within people who have the resources or people from the academia really brought me to a very good quote that I love about Asata Shakur. She said that she said that she really asked herself before she joined by the academia that she didn't want to lose touch of what's happening in the streets in terms of I really wanted to stay focused on what's happening in community that I don't lose touch that there's so much more that the community needs. Uh, so yeah, so that woman really shaped my understanding of how low communities can really get disconnected from public institution and anybody else. Because now this woman is really, really disconnected from public institution. No hospital has ever offered to really take care of this woman and treat them. She treats them from her house, gets the medical, treat them. These women are bleeding for quite a period, care for them, all of that. So that disconnect is dangerous. That disconnect shouldn't exist for 17 years, but here we are. It exist so yeah i guess i guess that's what i that's the thoughts i have for now thank you for sharing thank you um just a, a heads up uh, we have about a minute 
So I don't know if anyone or if you had any other closing questions before everybody uh, returns back here. Just a, a heads up. Thanks for the heads up, Bukemi. Any other questions? Um, but thank you also to our facilitators. I just want to mention that again. Uh, Jeffrey and Maddie, thank you very much for helping us uh, with this event. Thank you, Anu. Um, Anu is part of the APHN. Thank you for helping us. Um, and that's about it. So uh, see you guys soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more ways to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you'd rather just talk to us, you can send us an email at APHN underscore JHSPH at JHU.edu. Again, it's APHN underscore JHSPH at JHU.edu. More info in the show notes. Thank you.